0: Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and not joining me today, my friend, my neighbor my colleague, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly, and that's because this is a continuation of our flashback podcast series. And during the series over the holiday break, we are revisiting some of the most popular interview series episodes that we dropped over the course of the season. Today, we'll be revisiting one of the most popular interview series episodes that we dropped during the 2022 calendar year. We are going to revisit our conversation with Tyler Senarusa. And of course, that conversation really centered around Tyler and his company. Sensport Graphics. And if you don't recall, Sensport Graphics is one of the most popular companies that produces customized helmet graphics for race car drivers and professional motorcycle riders. With that, we're going to cut to a quick commercial break, pay some of those proverbial bills. I do hope that all of you at home, regardless of where you are, are enjoying the holidays and finding some time to spend with your family, your friends, and your loved ones. Enjoy the episode, and we'll be back in a couple of days with another Skidaria F1 news show.
1: Passion, drive, and patience.
0: Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and not joining me today is my colleague, my co worker, my friend, my nemesis, my neighbor, Mr. Mark Daly. And that is because this episode is a continuation of our interview series. But before we get started, I want to make sure we give a shout out to friend of the show, JT the Human thanks once again for providing the show with this fantastic sample. I'm going to sprinkle some royalties on you, my friend. Thank you once again. Now, if you are anything like me, you probably pay a pretty decent amount of attention to the helmets that your favorite drivers are wearing or that your favorite riders are wearing in MotoGP. The reason being that none of these helmets are off-the-shelf lids. Every driver in Formula One in Indy, and MotoGP have highly customized specialized helmets that are designed to reflect their personality as well as accommodate the needs of the driver's individual sponsors or the sponsors of the teams. Now, as we're about to discover, bringing these helmets to life and getting them into the paddock and onto the heads of our favorite athletes is quite a labor of love. Today, we're going to be talking with Tyler Senarusa. Tyler is the owner, the founder, and the mastermind behind SenSport Graphics, a US-based company that specializes in working with drivers and riders to help them realize their dreams when it comes to a specific design on their helmet. Tyler has worked with such drivers as Nicholas Latifi, amongst many others. We're going to come back after a quick commercial break. I really hope you enjoy the interview that you're about to hear. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Once again, you have Mark Hamilton. Mr. Daly is off today, but that is good news because we have an incredibly exciting guest. As we teased before the commercial break, joining us today is Tyler Senarusa. He is the artist, the founder, the genius, the brains behind the Sensports Graphics Consortium, the company that is pumping out some of the hottest helmet graphics in all of motorsports. Tyler, my friend, thank you so much for joining us us today. How the heck are you?
2: I couldn't be better. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on. uh, This is my first podcast. So thank you for uh, inviting me and asking me to To join.
0: You know, to be totally honest, I think our listeners are well aware that I'm a big fan of racing merchandise and racing memorabilia. And some of my favorite gear is actually the helmets that I still have for my motorcycle days. And I have some really great pieces. And I was always super, super passionate about the designs that different riders wear, the designs that different drivers wear. And when I stumbled across Sensport, I was particularly intrigued because I'd never really appreciated the amount of energy and design and work that goes into developing. Some of the custom graphics on these helmets, but before we get into that, because I'm dying to hear about the entire process, some of the relationships that you have with riders and drivers, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and maybe how you developed a personal connection to motorsports. Did you compete in motorsports growing up? Was it four wheels? Was it two wheels? In which series or championships were you most interested in when you were growing up? Racing didn't really. Uh, I didn't get the
2: racing bug until. Uh... Ninety nine. I was actually an aviation kind of guy. My dad and my grandfather were both pilots. And so I wanted to follow in their footsteps. And and, uh, so aviation was all I thought about up until, well, actually, my dad passed away in 97 in a plane crash. And we had to sell all the airplanes because there was no one in the family left to fly them. So, um, that was actually during the time he was teaching me how to fly when, when that accident happened. So I actually never soloed and never finished getting my license and then, you know, college and life and just life got in the way. That's still a, it's still a huge passion of mine. And I want to, you know, I want to eventually get my license and fulfill my legacy of, uh, you know, being a third generation, uh, pilot. So regardless, uh. After after the passing of my dad, um, I just kind of stumbled upon motorsports kind of serendipitously. Um, I was kind of channel surfing in high school and just happened to catch qualifying at uh, Detroit during the champ car days. And Montoya was on his pole run or on his qualifying run and was just on the ragged edge. I think he hit the wall twice, just brushed it with the magnesium wheels and sparked up the wall. and. And he put it on pole, and I was so flabbergasted by the sheer violence and speed and sound and, I mean, just the visceral experience, just watching it on TV. And and from then on, I was a, a Montoya fan. And uh, when he moved to Formula One, that's when I got into Formula One. Um, I wasn't even really a, a Formula One fan. I didn't, you know, in, in America, especially back in the late 90s, Formula One was not on the radar. You had to have speed vision. Right. You had to have you know, special cable package just to get, get those races. Um, but that's, that's where it started was just through, just through watching Montoya and it, the motorsports, it just grew and grew as I started watching AMA Superbike and WRC. And I mean, even NASCAR, um, I only watched NASCAR when Montoya was in NASCAR, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, they're all, they're all good and great, but there's so many forms of motorsport that I really, I don't have time to keep, um, up on the up and up on all the series. So but I still do watch quite a bit of racing. So, whenever it's a good race weekend, I'm like, okay, get prepared for me not doing much this weekend instead of sitting, yeah, I love it. Sitting on the couch watching uh, racing all weekend.
0: I love it. And I think it's really interesting as well that your entry point to motorsports was indie because what a lot of our listeners probably don't understand or don't know because they're newer to motorsport and Formula One was their entry point that back in the early 90s, prior to the IRL champ car split, Indy or American open wheel racing was huge, like globally, it wasn't necessarily quite as large as Formula One, but it had an international audience. So I think it's also very cool that Indy is kind of in this period of reemergence where it is blossoming again. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But if you're an open wheel racing fan in America, it's an exciting time simply because Formula One is growing and so too is, is Indy. Have you or did you at any point take up any type of motor racing yourself? Did you ever give autocross a try? Did you ever do any hot laps? And I think I've read as well that you're big into sport bike.
2: Um I was. It kind of it so I'll, I'll give you a, a timeline. So as far as like competing, I used to compete you know mountain bike racing, cross country and downhill, downhill ski racing. Uh, anything with wheels and speed, I was always I was always attracted to. Then I started autocrossing, and that's that's kind of when the helmet when the helmet game um, theme kind of came into play. So I went from autocross for a couple years, and then when I turned 26, I was I don't know why 26 is the magic number, but I was like, hey, I'm gonna buy a sport bike. I'm 26. So I feel I felt like I was mature enough to handle <laughs> that without you know killing myself the first month of having a bike. Didn't have any uh, any idea or inclination of racing motorcycles, but uh, one of the guys that kind of got me into sport bikes said, hey, let's go down to uh, Miller Motorsports Park in Utah and do uh, a track day. And that's when the racing series, um, like that's when the track was brand new in 2006 out in Utah. And we did one track day and we did some mock races. They weren't like club races at that time. It's just like, just to dip your toes in the water. And I was hooked uh, instantly hooked. And, um, the street body work on the, on the bike lasted about a month. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to turn this into a dedicated track, uh, you know, track race bike. Cause I almost got killed three times, um, in one summer of riding a, a crash rocket on the street. And I said, that's, that's enough for me. I, I feel much safer on a racetrack. So did the motorcycle racing for f- five years, about five years. Uh, got pretty handy at it, but also didn 't have the time or the budget for crash damage to to go balls to the wall to um you know push the limits so um yeah it was it was great got up into expert level status and got to ride one uh, support race for world superbike wow uh, at miller they a m a at that time was kind of folding it was before moto America took over, and they lost. So AMA normally would run with World Superbike, but they didn't run that year, and they needed to uh, fill some time with some sort of race. So they put up, it was called the Lucas Oil Challenge, and it was basically privateers and uh, club guys like me, because there was a big Suzuki payout that weekend. So you had like uh, Jeff May and some of the, you know, some really quick AMA guys um, doing that race, because they could win fifteen grand or something, and... Here I am in a field of 35 guys and uh it was it was intense it was intense. So, I think I started on the last row cuz I qu- crashed in qualifying and messed up my bike, but during the race I was able to make up I think six positions and didn't lose any positions and that was yeah, that was probably my my highlight as far as motorcycle racing was that that big event cuz it was a World super bike race and there were lots of people um in the stands that time. So
0: yeah, that's an incredible experience. Did you, did you have a particular manufacturer that you favored when you were racing? Was there a specific brand that you started with and you stuck with them or did you bounce around and ultimately find a bike or an engine or a gearbox that you're most comfortable with?
2: I just, I stuck, I bought a Honda CBR 600RR and just, that's the only thing that I rode for, for those six years. I would have liked to jump up to the thousands, but at that time, you know, I was married. I, you know, we had kids and uh, the racing kind of took a backseat to just every everyday life. And also the business was so busy at that point that I couldn't afford the time off work to to go down once a month to go race. So it just kind of uh, slowly fizzled out. But uh, yeah, the Honda, I've always been a Honda guy. Um, I don't know why I chose the Honda. Well, actually, I kind of do. The Hondas a really good overall bike. It doesn't right. do anything. It doesn't stand out in one category. It just does everything pretty well. So it doesn't have as much horsepower, it doesn't handle as well as the R6s, but it, it's easier to ride, and and I thought it was the best-looking bike. So I, <laughs> I'm an aesthetic guy, so I kind of, uh, that was a, a precursor, or, you know, that was, that's kind of why I went that route with the Honda.
0: My first sport bike was very similar. It was a 2007 US Special Edition Honda CBR 600RR. And unfortunately, it got stolen as sport bikes often do. And I upgraded to what I thought was at the time my dream bike, a Triumph Daytona uh, 675R, which was immensely more difficult to ride and was far more complex than a bike should be for the street. But it looked fantastic. But boy, did I miss that Honda CBR 600RR because it just made riding a sport bike so incredibly Remarkably comfortable, but also very, very easy. So, I think this is cool. So, you had some experience autocrossing, which I think is the perfect gateway. So, if anybody's listening at home, if you want to try motorsports, try karting. It's accessible, there's tracks near every major metropolitan area. If you've got a car and you'd like to take your car out, a great place to start is autocross. And we can talk about that a little bit later in future episodes. But from your perspective, you've done both. You've been two wheels, you've been four wheels, you've been around the sport, you've watched the sport how would you how would you explain the difference to somebody that's maybe never been on a motorbike before how would you expe- or explain the sensation or the experience of piloting a motorcycle around a racetrack versus being in a metal cage
2: uh it's it's intense the closest thing that i could kind of correlate sport bike racing too is, is ski racing or skiing. I don't know. I just kind of felt, you know, when you're turning you're leaning, uh, you're using your whole body to make the bike do what you need it to do to get around the corner for, for whatever reason, I just was comfortable right out of the gate. Um, once I learned how to use the clutch and not stall the bike, um, (laughs) once you get up, I don't know, just once it's just intoxicating and you just keep the throttle. It's just, I don't know. You just can't let off the throttle. It's just, I gravitated towards it. So, so well, but, uh, But it was never going to be a career. Obviously, getting into the game at 26, there's no way, no way you're going to make it. In any, and that that wasn't my aspiration either. It was just for fun. Uh, Yeah, it's it's every time that so I'd race once a month. You go out in your first practice session after being off the bike for a month, and you just you're like, holy crap, I'm going to kill myself. This thing is way too fast. And then you go out for your second practice session. You get a little bit, you feel a little bit more comfortable and and you just get the, you get the timing down and you just, yeah. And then, and then once the race starts, then your adrenaline is flowing and you're on the gas way harder than you ever would be in practice. You're on the brakes later than you ever would be in practice. It's just weird how your body automatically, your adrenaline takes over when you're in a racing scenario. And, um, it was thrilling, but I, you know, I won't go back to motorcycles. Um, I thought that I might at one point, you know, get back in, get a thousand and, they're so much rider. they so much easier to ride nowadays. They have wheelie control, launch control, um, clutchless upshifting, clutch clutchless downshifting, um, so many electronic aids, traction control. Um, so that would make it a thousand cc bike a lot more enjoyable to ride than when I was, you know, riding back in the early two thousands, mid two thousands. Um. So yeah, I I miss it, but I also don't miss it, and. Now I've kind of, I put the race bike away and uh, have gotten into just doing track days and kind of NASA time attack stuff. Um, And then also karting. We have a a brand new kart track here and they're actually building the same people are building another track that's going to be even bigger and it's going to be suitable for Scusa events. So it's, karting's actually really blowing up in the valley here in uh, the Treasure Valley. Boise, uh, Meridian, Meridian, you know, just the metropolitan area of Boise. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, um, God, what's his name? The Red Bull shootout where it was Scott Speed and uh, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but his dad just moved here and they're huge, huge karting family. Uh, really big engineers are moving here. And uh, yeah, I just think that the motorsport scene has just been begging
0: to, to burst in this valley. We've had some listeners to the show that some, in fact, that don't even have driver's licenses that have become fans of open wheel racing and have gone karting, and they have been absolutely enthralled. Like they've become obsessed with it. For anyone listening at home, what would your recommendation be? If they've got a hankering, if they want to get a taste of motorsports, is karting a good place? Is it the right place to start? Oh, yeah. I think it's the only way to get started. Again, to
2: tip your dip your toes in the water and get taste of it. It's, you know, a minimal expense to get to get started in a cart versus a car. It's safer. There's, you know, you can get an LO206 that has low horsepower and it's a spec class and it's a sealed engine. So, you know, it's really hard for people to cheat. And you get really big grids in the LO206 class. And it's just hard, fair racing. I have yet to try a shifter. I've done a Rotax. Those are super fun. But yeah, I would definitely you know, go to your local cart track, even go to an indoor go-kart track just to, again, just to to get a taste of it. And I I mean, that's, that's how Nicholas was, was found out was an indoor go-kart track. So you never know. I mean, every, you know, you don't know what your potential is until you try it. So yeah, my advice was to, is to, you know, get a cart and, or, or just rent one or borrow one and, uh, you'll be hooked and, You'll be out
0: there racing in no time. I love it. And you make such a great point about Nicky as well, that so many of these Formula One drivers, they either start in karting when they're super young, four, five, six, seven years old, or even after they've made their way through all the formulas in their Formula One. You talk about Nicky, people ask him all the time, like, what do you do to keep your conditioning up? How do you train? And every chance he gets, he's at the kart track. Even now as a Formula One driver, he's still going karting frequently. All right, Tyler, we're going to take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, and we'll pick up this conversation in just a minute.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where
0: Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem-solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
0: Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. This is Mark at the Scuderia F1 podcast. Joining us once again, Mr. Tyler Santarusa from Sen Sports Graphics. My friend, thank you so much for joining. I think that's a really good immersion into your experience, your personal history with motorsports. And I want to talk a little bit about the current Formula 1 campaign, the current MotoGP campaign, the current IndyCar campaign. We'll save that for later in the podcast. But what I really want to learn about a little bit more is is your business. You run a very specialized, very, very highly thought of business designing and executing the implementation of graphics on high-end racing helmets, both for amateurs, but also for professionals that are competing at some of the highest levels of motorsports. Maybe talk a little bit about your passion for artistry and graphic design. Even before the business started, where did that come from? I I know and I've heard that initially you went to college because you were going to pursue a business degree and at some point you pivoted, but where did your passion and your desire to explore graphic design as a career come from?
2: I think I just stopped kidding myself in college. I've always been artistic ever since, you know, I could remember. So art's always been that, you know, that was the only class, you know, subject in school that was an automatic a for me. Everything else was a little bit harder for me. Um, so yeah, I kind of wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps. Uh, he was an entrepreneur in the restaurant industry. And at that time, you know, my mom was still operating the restaurants and I felt like, you know, he had already built kind of a, a base for, you know, something, a legacy. And, uh, something that I could jump into. I mean, that was kind of my, when he was still alive, that was kind of, you know, I'm like, well, I'll just go into business with my dad and, you know, kind of follow in his footsteps and and take it it from there. And that kind of, that ended. And I was a freshman at uh, University of Idaho uh, taking business classes. And it was, you know, probably the first, after the first semester, I was like, yeah, this just, this isn't for me. I need to stop kidding myself and and do what I'm really good at and go into graphic design. I picked graphic design because it's more it's probably the most versatile degree in in art to have a corporate job. And that's not you know that's not to say that it's better than being a fine arts artist, but that's just the route I went. Um, I've always been really good with design, uh, color palettes, balance. I'm not so much a sketch guy or an illustrator guy. That illustration always. Intimidated the crap out of me. So yeah, I, it just it just kind of evolved. I got my degree in graphic design, but couldn't find a job in the, in the advertising world uh, when I graduated in 2006. That's kind of when the economy here in the states kind of took a a nosedive, and that was the first thing that that people were cutting out of their budgets. And uh, also my education, where I went to school, they didn't. Really prepare us very well for the for the real world. We were mostly taught print media and not so much on the web side. We had kind of a crash course in in my last semester where we learned Dreamweaver, Flash, uh, a lot of web based design programs, and it's just they tried to condense it way too much, and I didn't retain any of that information. And as a result, you know that's that's what companies were looking for. You know, out of you know hiring people out of school was web-based knowledge which i lacked so couldn't find a job was already painting helmets for a year just as a side gig while i was going to school and and just you know side money a side hustle but i did have an llc i had a website and and things were going well and you know i i kind of just saw the writing on the wall and you know i knew that there were companies in the world that we're making a living out of painting helmets and i said, you know, why can't i? and i just kind of just went from there never had a an end game or a long game it's just tunnel vision, you know, you just go from job to job and uh increase your skill set, you know, every every helmet i did when i first started i wanted to try a new technique to get diverse and and not you know, pigeonhole myself into doing the same thing over and over. And I I think that's a really, that's a really good part of uh what, you know, just what I've, what I've, what I've done. Um I don't want any helmet to look the same as the one before. And I let the, the clients steer the ship. So, uh, you know, it's a custom piece for them. It's not what I say they're going to
0: have. It's what they say they want. The assumption I always had was you go to school, you've got a vision in mind, I'm going to design helmets, I'm going to be a professional, I'm going to start a business. But in your case, it sounds like that wasn't necessarily the way it went, which is you went to school, start a business, switch to graphic design. Unfortunately, kind of the web component was compressed a little bit, but that you still had this vision or this expectation that, hey, I've got to go and get a marketing job, I've got to do graphic design for a big company. But on the side, in parallel to that, it sounds like you had already started painting helmets, which isn't necessarily something that I think a lot of people would pick up as a side gig or as a side hustle. It's very specialized. It's very specific type of work. Maybe talk about the first helmet that you painted and why or how that came about. Because I think for a lot of people, you look at that helmet, whether it's from Bell or it's from Shoei or if it's AGV, you know, it's got a pre-printed design. You assume it's done in a factory. How did you end up painting your first helmet? Did somebody come to you or was it a personal need?
2: Well, it was a personal need because I was autocrossing and I needed a, you know, I didn't want to use the, you know, the spare helmets that they had for people that didn't have a helmet. So I bought an Arai motorcycle helmet just at a local motorcycle shop and it was charcoal black or charcoal gray. It was a nice looking helmet, but I wanted it, I wanted it custom painted. And of course I wanted it to be like Montoya's helmet because he's my favorite driver. Oh, right. So I called a company... Um, back then and and inquired about you know how much would it cost and you know what's the process and and he said you know I, i would need your helmet for three months it'd be x amount of dollars and i was like okay that's you know that's not too bad and then i was at a at a regional race in nevada and we had a banquet at the end of the event and we just were randomly seated with other people and the guy i was sitting next to we just got to chatting and he used to paint cars and i asked him if he would help me learn how to use automotive paint cuz uh, i know how to paint i just don't know how to use those specific materials right and he said yeah sure come out to my house and and we'll you know you mask it off and then i'll i'll help you shoot color and then when you get all the color on i'll i'll show you how to clear coat and so that's what i did i i kind of did my own montoya replica instead of the colombian colors i used red white and blue for obvious reasons and uh it came out, you know, <laughs> it was impressive for a first try. Definitely was not up to par now, but I, yeah. So it was just strictly for myself, for, for my own vanity in racing uh, autocross. And um, at that time I was on the Beamer forums and uh, cause I had an E36 M3. That's what I was autocrossing. And they had a track um, and race section of the forum that I posted a picture of my helmet and you know, just to show people and got a lot of positive feedback from that. And actually, Tommy Milner was a, a member of the forums and saw the helmet. And he's like, Hey, do you want to paint two of my helmets? I'm like, uh, yeah. Wow. And <laughs> so he was my Amazing. he was my first pro, and it was pretty soon out of the gate. And at that time he was driving for uh Panos. And then he went to the the Ray Hall Porsche and He's been with me ever since. We have a great relationship, and I mean, same with Pato and Nicholas, and they're all great guys, and we have awesome relationships. and 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 their lo- their loyalty means everything to me. And and it just yeah, it snowballed from grassroots to a full a full fledged business, and uh, and it's just yeah, every day is it's the same, but it's not because every helmet's different, and I still have the same passion every, every time I walk in the shop, I'm just, I sit down ready to, to work on the helmet and I'm just in my hat. And I just, yeah, I'm so fortunate to be able to find my passion, A, to find your passion. That's not easy. And, and B to take the ball and run with it. And, uh, and just, you gotta be gritty and well, not gritty. You gotta have grit and just work your ass off and and grind and grind and grind to get your name out there and you never want to let people down. Another thing with probably the trickiest thing with our profession is deadlines. Because, you know, races, races don't care. You know, a race doesn't care if you're not, if you're too busy for, the, for a guy's helmet. You know, if it's in your shop and let's say Sebring's next week, it's like you got to get that helmet done. So um, that's, the only, that's the only downside to our industry is uh,
0: deadlines. That's fascinating. And I'm dying to know that you know you do your helmet. It turns out really well. You got some support along the way using automotive paints, clear coating. It looks fantastic, like any of us would. You want to flex on your your newfound. Passion, you you found capability, you post it on a web form, which back 15 years ago would have been how we communicated long before social media. Somebody else sniffs it out, sees what you're doing, and says, Hey, dude, do you mind doing a couple of lids for me? At what point, or maybe it was that moment, at what point did you realize that I've got this newfound capability, this newfound skill set? It aligns with my personal passions. At what point did you realize that this could be a full-time gig? Or maybe at first it was more of a side hustle that you did on the side?
2: Um, I think it was probably after i graduated to be honest when the reality set in that you know I'd, no one was hiring maybe i was i don't know maybe my portfolio wasn't good enough to be hired i don't i don't know but i just knew at that point i had already been painting for a year and a half had a website kept getting new calls every week and i just saw the potential and and i said This is what I want to do.
0: Another question then, and I think this is something that some of our listeners specifically had asked us to ask you, is they look at some of these custom helmets that the drivers have. And I think sometimes the assumption is that it's basically a print that is printed off a vinyl printer stuck on the helmet and it's done. But that's not actually the case, that these helmets require significant energy in a couple of different ways. Once there's the collaborative component of designing the helmet, what do you want it to look like? What do you want the statement to be? What do you want the Message to be. And then there's you actually going into the shop and pouring in the labor to bring that to life. Before we get to the second piece of this, how do you collaborate with your clients? Do you have a template that you provide to them? So, hey, somebody's coming to you, look, I'd love to get a helmet done. Or maybe it's a repeat customer that you've done work with in the past. They come to you. How do you suss out what it is that they want to land in that design so that when you ship that helmet back to them, it's exactly what they're looking for?
2: I definitely want to extract as much information from the client as possible. It's really not fun when they say, hey... I want you to paint my helmet. I like red, white, and blue or yellow and green. And then they don't, they don't really give you any other direction because then I'm shooting in the dark at that point. And let's say I spend four hours on a design and I'm really happy with it. And I, I, you know, send them, you know, a a JPEG or a you know, illustrated version via email and, and they shoot it down or they're like, change this, change. Well, editing is fine, but if it, they totally shoot down the concept, then I've wasted four hours and they've wasted money because I charge by the hour for design work. So I try and educate them as much as possible to make it as easy for them and me and as cheap on them as well. Like if I have mountain of information, I can come up with something really sick that I know they're going to like. So it's it's all based, it's all driven by the client. It's client Client driven. I think that by now I have a good enough track record and examples of my work that people can say, "Oh, I like, I like this part of that helmet. I like that part of this helmet." And they can, you know, if they are inspired by another helmet artist's work, I'm totally cool with taking inspiration uh, and making it, you know, tweaking it to to be different. But yeah, I mean, this—it's infinite possibilities. You know, whatever whatever comes into your mind. If I can technically pull it off, I'll, I'll pull it off. And if I can't pull it off, I have, you know, resources and friends and, um, you know, you can ask advice, you know, hey, I haven't done this technique, Austin, Poland or Mike Corby or, you know, how, how did you do that? And for the most part, our community is really amazing and we help each other out and uh, we're all really good buds And, uh, yeah, it's just the camaraderie of our industry is unbelievable. It's, it's my favorite part of, of what, what I do and what, because it's such a small niche of people that do this for a living. And, um, it's just, we have mad respect for one another. And again, I'm talking in circles, kind of going off topic, but, um, yeah, back to the question, I'd say it's all, it's all based on what the client wants.
0: Let's talk about an example then. So you've done some helmets that I know our listeners are going to be familiar with. We have a ton of indie fans. They love Paddle Award. That green Nashville special edition last year was fantastic. Nicholas Latifi, his 2020 helmet, his 2021 helmet that obviously uh, reflects his passion and his love for his hometown. And then the 750th Grand Prix special edition Monaco helmet that he wore last year. Those are all your babies. You worked with those drivers to bring those to life. Maybe talk about the Nicholas Latifi examples. How did those helmets come to be? How did that relationship come to be? And then when he came to you for that first helmet, and perhaps he did helmets with you even before these, but maybe in reference to the special edition Monaco helmet and those Toronto helmets, how did the how did the design process work for those? Did he come to you with a vision or an illustration that was something you guys came up with collaborative? Maybe talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, I was actually referred... Nicholas was referred to me by Patrice uh, at Smart Race Paint. Uh, Patrice was painting uh, Nicholas and Michael, Nicholas's dad's helmets. And so they already had a design. Um, And Patrice was closing up shop. He was going to, I think he was asked to be, to manage a ski and bicycle shop. And he had kind of been burnt out on the painting side and wanted to take a hiatus. And we had a really good relationship. So he gave me, you know, a lot of his really good clients, he referred them to me. So that's how I got Nicholas. And so, yeah, it, the first one for Nicholas was basically just his his design that Patrice did with just some minor tweaks just to make it not, you know, a copy of Patrice's work. But so, yeah, Nicholas already had his identity um, out of the gate coming to me. So, and he's uh, pretty conservative on the design side. He doesn't deviate very much from his design, which, i you know i kind of like because it, it just makes my life s- simpler um so yeah the monaco one uh it was their idea to it was going to be a, cl- a gift for claire because they were selling the team right at that point and i don't know just when they kind of had the ideas just popped in my head when they said a williams tribute helmet i thought of all the iconic liveries that they've had over the years and there's been some amazing liveries and I took you know probably the two most iconic ones um, from the 80s and early 90s, the Rothmans and the the Canon camel cars and uh, because they both they both shared the same color palette blue, red, gold and yellow gold and yellow are you know kind of similar. So I did the split. Um, you know, one side being the 80s kind of car and then the the right side being the 90s car. And then, they, yeah, they wanted a photo collage of, you know, the, just the history of, of the team and um, a tribute to Frank as well. So they sent me, Nicholas sent me, you know, a file with all the photos that he wanted included on the helmet. And there were quite a few of them, but it also wasn't enough to fill up the space. So I went ahead and picked out, some of my favorite, you know, shots to get, you know, every era of of the team's history on the helmet, you know, from from day one up until their current stuff. And yeah, it was just a a project of passion. I was 110% focused on that one. I was so proud that it was going to be at Monaco and be given to Claire at the end of the race. And so that's part of her collection. Um and it's very flattering to to create something so special
0: for 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 the Latifis and for for the Williams and that was exactly going to be my next question is more than ever especially with the growth of open wheel racing and formula 1 one of the ways that drivers can really express themselves and express their passion for certain things is through their helmet. Because once they're in the car, really aside from the number, which isn't necessarily always that obvious, the way you can identify a driver both in the paddock and in the car is by their helmet. For you, this isn't just any Grand Prix. It's not even just a Formula One race. This is Monaco, which is very much the crown jewel of the championship. And I think that helmet got a significant amount of exposure, both on social media and with the Sky Race broadcast. You must have felt absolutely amazing being able to see your work being strutted out and presented so so magnificently during that Grand Prix weekend. It's just to give you a little bit of background, families in the U.K., are typically born into fandom. You're born being a, a specific football fan, fan or a football club fan arsenal, but you're also born into a family that supports a specific British Formula One team. And in my case, it was Williams. So Williams dominated my upbringing in the Nigel Mansell days, et cetera. So when I saw that helmet, it was, it was flashbacks in my case of time spent with my grandparents in the late 80s, early 90s, watching Williams dominate in Formula One. So that was something that was very special to me. And as soon as the pre-sales went on sale for that one half scale helmet... I was all over that one, but it was a majestic piece of work. And you just touched on something else that I think is very, very—I well, at least I'm very curious about—is how much time. Does it take to put into these helmets? So one piece of this is the collaboration with the driver, with the rider, coming to a consensus on what that design needs to look like. What what is the final product going to look like? But two, how much time is actually invested into putting that helmet together? Because I presume there's a lot of time spent in the digital world designing it. And then there's the entirely physical component, which is actually laying that design onto the helmet itself. What does that process look like? And how many hours on average would you spend putting into a helmet like this?
2: Probably 40 to 50 on, uh, on a helmet as intricate as the Monaco one. Every job's different. You know, sometimes I can, again, if a, if a client comes with a lot of information and it gets my creative juices flowing before I even sit down in front of the computer, I kind of already know what I'm going to do, then I can bust out a design in an hour, two hours. Uh, other times, you know, I'm sitting there for hours trying to surf the internet, just trying to get inspiration on something. So, I mean, it's all over the, all over the road on that one. Production-wise, I'd say a minimum of 25 hours and a maximum of 50 and an average of probably 35, 30, 30 to 40 average. So I can do... If I can do 5 helmets a month, that's pretty good. I can, you know, if I do if I do 6, then I'm I'm uh, cranky cuz I'm not getting much sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, if I can do if I can average over the year, if I can average 1 a week, so like 52 helmets a year plus or minus. That's kind of where I've been uh the past 10 years uh production-wise cuz I am completely solo now. Um I did have a helper. I've always had some sort of help up until this last May. Uh my brother worked f- with me for 3 or 4 years and then he moved to Seattle. And then I got uh I got this guy that um is friends with Stingray Rob and and he, you know, uh was a go, you know, I met him at the at the kart track and he worked with me while he was going to BSU and he graduated in May and so I lost him and he was an amazing amazing uh I wouldn't even call him an employee. I mean he was, but He's more of my helper. So he'd come in and sand in the morning. I'd stay late to get something clear coated before I headed home. And he's like a Johnny on the spot kind of guy he gets up at 6 a.m. Uh, so before he went to school, he would come into the shop, sand a helmet. So it was ready for me uh, when I came in uh, a couple hours later. Uh, so that was fantastic. But yeah, he's now uh, uh, an employee of Andretti Autosport. Um, I think as an engineer on one of the lights teams. So yeah. So now it's back to just, just me, but also my wife, uh, Lindsay, she, she's an artist as well. That's kind of, that's how we met. We met in college and she has a fine arts degree. And, um, before I even worked with my brother, you know, it was just me and Lindsay and then we had kids and then she kind of had to be the mom. Um, but now that I'm at home, um, actually sold my shop. Uh, I was about 30 mile or 30 minutes a day, uh, each way commute. And I just got, I was doing that for 10 years and I just got tired of it. So I just wrapped up, uh, building an addition onto my house that, so I'm, I'm working from home. I've got a home studio and, and Lindsay can pop in and prep a helmet or mask a helmet or spray a helmet or, you know, she's very versatile and, uh, and who knows, maybe my kids will, you know, maybe it'll be a second generation
0: thing. I I don't know. Let's take a quick break because when we come back, what I would love is if you could walk us through the process from the point of receiving the helmet to the point where you turn it back to that driver, to that rider. So we're going to take a quick break, pay some bills, and we'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me once again is Tyler Senarusa of SenSport Graphics. We have been talking about designing specifically motorsport helmets for open wheel racing, for NASCAR, for MotoGP, for all different types of series. He owns the business that I just spoke to a couple of minutes ago, Sensport Graphics. He is the founder. He is the owner. He is the mastermind behind this business. You have seen some of his work. You've seen his his work in Indy. You've seen his work in Formula One. But now we're hoping to get into a little bit of a discussion about the actual process, the ABCs of designing a helmet. So you've talked a little bit, Tyler, about the process of collaborating with a driver, collaborating with a rider on coming up with a design. Now, what does the process actually look like? So obviously, so you've got to ingest a helmet. Does the helmet come from the rider? Does it come from the driver? Do you purchase the helmet based on sizing specifications? What does that look like? And once you've got the helmet, how do you start prepping it for painting and for the overhaul that's to come? So I am a dealer for Arai,
2: Bell, and Stilo. So I am a, a helmet supplier. I'd say eight times out of 10, people purchase a helmet from me brand new. Uh, the other 20%, they'll, they already have a helmet, and they'll send it in. So we start by tearing all the rubber trim off. Well, not tearing it off. You, you take it off carefully because you want to replace it, uh, if possible. And then you tape up the interior, sand it, scuff it, just to get it to kind of like a car in white or a body in white. Then just start laying pencil lines and tape.
0: So these are blanks then? So I'm presuming when you go to work, you're just ordering a blank white helmet, a blank...
2: No, I order complete helmets. Um, I only get bare shells if it's a pro driver and, and it's sent to me directly from the factory. I actually prefer complete helmets because I can put them together. You know, I know I can put them together as well, if not better than some of the manufacturers do. and. It's a complete piece that I can take, uh, you know, studio shots of. When it's a bare shell, it's kind of hard to get a studio shot to make it look like a complete helmet. Um, so I do prefer, even though it's more work for me to do the, the extra prep work, I really enjoy it.
0: So you get the helmet, you strip it down, you sand it, then you start laying down the pencil lines and start spraying it. What does the spraying component seem like? Like I'm assuming, is it is it one color at a time? Spray, you let it dry, do another color, and you go through multiple intervals until the design is finally done, and then it's a clear coat. How does the pr- or this uh, the spraying process work?
2: I uh, just you know, I have an assortment of spray guns. Um, and just automotive paint, you just, you know, I get it at my local auto body shop or I order it online. Uh, I use a variety of different uh, paint manufacturers. Um, and yeah, just kind of, and they last forever. I mean, helmets are such a small surface area that, you know, a quarter paint, you know, can last me 10 years. Um, other colors I go through quite frequently, especially, you know, white and black, because every... Every helmet, pretty much every helmet I do now is a carbon fiber helmet. So you need to base it in white uh, before you start your, you know, your colors. And you want to start with your lightest colors first and then go, you know, gradually get darker. And if I'm working on, I do like to work on multiples at a time. Um, so I could get, you know, I'll get all three prep you know, three or four prepped and then I'll... Um, lay out the design on all three of them and then I'll mask off, you know, every helmet's going to need white at some point, right? Well, not every helmet, but let's just say these three helmets all have white. So you'll spray white on all three of them. And then you kind of do an assembly line that way, that way you're not mixing paint and cleaning your gun. And, you know, cause that takes, you know, believe it or not, cleaning your airbrushes out, cleaning your equipment, you know, every time you do a color change it, you have to clean your equipment and, it's really annoying. So <laughs> you want to you want to uh limit limit the workload as much as possible. So sometimes working on 3 at a time is a lot uh, more
0: Efficient. That's a great point. And, and it was actually going to be my next question is, you know, Nicholas Latifi or somebody else doesn't order. They've ordered a helmet. And obviously we talk about that Monaco helmet being a special edition and you probably didn't run off more than one or two of those. But for Nicholas Latifi, who's going to rock the same design for an entire campaign as most drivers do, how many lids would you actually provide them? Because helmets don't last forever. And if they get dropped or they get damaged, obviously they're going to want to replace them because they don't want to be seen wearing a dropped helmet or a scratched helmet. And again, helmets, the Structural integrity of a helmet can be damaged or ruined by a, a simple drop or something like that. So when somebody like Nicholas comes to you, how many helmets do you prepare for him for any given campaign? Again, he's he's really
2: conservative on that on that side. Well, now now his helmets are being produced in house in Belgium by Bell Europe. So they have a waterslide decal system. So Lewis's helmets, Leclerc, all the not all, but. Most of the Bell drivers, their helmets are done in-house with water slide decals. It saves about 10 grams of weight. Um, that's another right. thing with the, especially Formula One helmets, you have to be very conscious about weight and you have to weigh the helmet through the process because you can't put on more than 40 grams of of paint. Right. I mean, 40 grams is actually kind of heavy for a Formula One helmet. And, and that's wow. a really big challenge in itself because normally I'll do... Probably at least at least two sessions of clear coat. So I'll lay all the base colors down and get and and clear coat it. So those are all locked down and safe. So if I have a mistake, you know, I can either sand it off or I can use lacquer thinner and wipe off my mistake and not affect the the base colors underneath. But in Nicholas's case and even Pato, um, all those paint jobs are done on one layer, and uh, it took a while to get to get good at it, but um, Now I actually prefer doing one layer paint jobs. It's just so much easier and so much faster to do everything on, on one layer. And I mean, it takes years and years of experience to, to get that precise and to get that efficient. Um, and yeah, I'm glad I've, I'm glad I was able to finally figure that out. That's
0: remarkable and not something I'd ever thought about. We always hear so much about how teams are extremely conservative with the paint they apply to their cars. Some teams won't apply a clear coat. Some will go ultra, ultra thin. Some will leave the carbon fiber bare wherever they can to save weight. Never thought about it with a helmet. When, when one of these professional drivers come to you, do they come to you with an expectation that, hey, look, you can't apply more than X amount of grams of paint and clear coat because it needs to. Be this, or is that generally understood that hey, look, I've got forty grams or forty grams to work with here.
2: Um, I think it's really only when you get to the top tiers of motorsport that that becomes a concern. If you're driving a GT car or just you know your Porsche 911 GT3, you're not doing four Gs plus laterally or six Gs you know under braking. You know that's that's when the rate you know when the weight is multiplied by your g forces that's when it comes into play. So it's it's really more specific for the open cockpit guys that are pulling lots of g force. The first time I had to be conscious of weight was when Nicholas went to Formula One. I've been with Nicholas for ten plus years. It was right after he was getting out of karting, and so when he was in the junior Formula F three, uh, F two uh weight wasn't as much of a concern i mean his some of his first helmets were actually pretty heavy because they were chrome and they had engine turned silver you know gold leaf and just a lot of layering wow and once he got to formula one uh he's like yeah these need to be like 30 grams and i'm like all right challenge accepted so (laughs) uh yeah yeah it's it it's 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 fun yeah it's uh it's a challenge, for sure.
0: Tyler, of all of the helmets that you've designed, and I know we mentioned uh, Awards Green Nashville, which I want to talk about a little bit in a couple of minutes, and Nicholas Latifi's Monaco Special Edition, but of all the helmets that you've done, and you spoke to the fact that you do a ton of them over the last decade, which is your favorite, or which helmet do you look back on most fondly, and why? Oh, God. That's impossible for me to, <laughs> to answer. I really,
2: I mean, I really don't. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could pick out, like, a top 10. Yeah even a top 10 would be hard. I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years and there's quite a few uh, beauties out there in the world. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I have, I have an affinity for every single one that I do because, you know, there's a part of me in every one that I do. So yeah, I just, every time I finish a helmet, I just put it on the shelf and stare at it for a bit and admire it and take pictures and share them with the client cuz you know you want to get that instant gratification of you know the feedback from the client um and when you when you uh when you hit the ball out of the park and they are just praising you it's i mean there's no better feeling so and also what something that i never considered was the emotions that like for you for example seeing the monaco helmet it brought back memories of you watching the grand prix with your family and that's something that i never considered and that that again is like even more cool, even more special to, to have an effect on other people other than the client or myself.
0: Absolutely. I I have to praise Nicholas as well. It was Nicholas's tweet. Um, praising you for one of the helmets that actually brought me into the sphere of the work that you do. So all the praise to Nicholas. I know he's an incredibly humble guy that gives praise and recognition where it's due. Maybe talk a little bit because I've teased about this, but awards showed up at the Nashville Music City Grand Prix last year, rocking a particularly cool helmet that was very, very green and had some flashes of red. Maybe talk a little bit about how that helmet came to be and where that relationship came from.
2: Actually, since Pato's been in IndyCar full-time, he has been working with Miles Murphy of MDM Design in the UK. And uh, Miles, you know, designs for Lando and, I mean, just, I can't think of, I can't, I'm having a brain fart. But there's, there's a, a handful of guys over in Europe that are specifically designers. So they don't paint the helmets, they just design them. So, so Pato, I think he got introduced to Miles, uh, from maybe just going over to Europe. I, I can't remember. Um, but he's like, you know, I like Miles' work and I want to make it as easy on you as possible. So you don't have to worry about designing. And that's one, one thing I really like, uh, that, that was really nice for Pato to, to make my life easier. Cause he actually, believe it or not, gets more helmets painted per year than anyone else by a large margin. Um, I only did, I think, four or five for Nicholas in 2020, and I only did three in 2021. There were two of his normal paint, normal design ones, and then that Monaco special, and then all the other ones have been done, uh, in-house by Bell, which actually, again, is, is nice for me because I already have so many X amount of people I can fit in a year on my, on my list, and, you know, Pat Pat has taken up like, you know, an eighth of my productivity, you know, capability. So the less I have to do per driver, the the better. So, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of the way it's, you know, things are changing and especially in formula one, um, things are going to be streamlined and, and more done in house with the water slides. Um, I'm actually c- curious why Arai and, and Stilo don't have that capability in house, but, but yeah, that's, uh, kind of technology that Bell has jumped on. And I know it's a huge machine, a very costly, expensive machine. And if you go to Bell Europe, they won't even let you in the room where they have the machine. They're so protective over it. But uh it's a total game changer. But... It's only useful for something that's going to be replicated over and over and over. It's you, it's not something you can do for, for one-offs because it takes so much setup time to get that machine to to work properly. I know it took Bell probably six or nine months to get Nicholas's design accurate and passable. Uh,
0: but now that they have it down, it's it's great. How do you work around sponsor requirements? obviously sponsors are a big part of motorsports every series every single discipline but when a driver comes to you or a rider comes to you and they want to design how do you work in sponsorships in a way that satisfies the driver the team and the sponsor themselves when you think about Nicholas obviously the presence of Sofina, and when you think about award it might be Gorilla or Arrow or Chevy do they come to you or do the sponsors have requirements about logo placement and things like that or do you have some creative license in terms of how you work them into the design of the helmet no
2: there's definitely guidelines especially in the formula one world so nicholas will send me a design well not a design template but a template of a helmet and it says you know this logo needs to be right here it needs to be x amount of centimeters wide and tall you know that's it it has to go right there so you have to design the rest of the design around where the logos are going to be you know fortunately for nicholas he's always had a design that is very easy to, um, adopt different, you know, different sponsor logos. So he's got that space on the forehead. He has the halo around the top for sponsor space. And, you know, the Sofina is down by the, by the jaw Pato. Yeah. It's just his, again, his design is, um, very open for, for sponsor logo placement. It's not restrictive. Um, it's got a lot of real estate. And that's something you need to keep in consideration when you are designing for someone that's a professional. You don't want to have their design be so cluttered that you can't really tell what it is and you won't be able to like pick out a sponsor because it's jumbled with a bunch of stuff all around it. So I kind of gravitate towards clean, simple, designs not simple
0: but you know clean and not cluttered it's kind of my that's kind of my style how important do you think a helmet is to the identity of a driver we talk about big four sports in North America, that it can be tough sometimes for people to follow an NHL team simply because it can be tricky to identify and I see a, who a, a specific player is. And the same a little bit with the NFL. Everyone's behind a helmet. The NBA is very popular because the personality and the presence of the player is right in front of you. You can see them. You know their personality. You can see how they interact on the court. In motorsports, the drivers are often cocooned in a car or maybe they're strapped to a bike, but it's really up to the design of the helmet to help express their personality. How important do you think helmet design is for the individualism and to help these athletes express their personality? I think it's massively
2: important because it's the only real estate that they have that, that, that is theirs. Everything else is dictated by what the team and sponsors tell them they need to wear. Um, so yeah, it's it's immensely I mean, that's the whole reason why we have a a profession here is is based on that fact.
0: Back in the early 2000s, before I was even into motorcycle racing. I knew nothing about Moto GP, but I could spot Valentino Rossi from 400 miles away because you recognized his distinctive his uh distinctive race suit, you re- you recognize his distinctive boots and his gloves, but more than anything his helmet and there are there are legions of fans around the world that would be able to identify every race and every moment of his career based on the helmet that he was wearing at that specific time and I think there was a lot of criticism of Formula 1 under Bernie Ecclestone because he had really clamped down on the ability of drivers to rock multiple helmet designs throughout the course of a season. I think there was an exception where they could wear a different helmet once a season or something like that, but under Liberty, it seems like they've opened up and they've relaxed some of those rules so drivers can do a little bit more to express their personality and their individualism. Okay, my friend, I'm dying to hear now, you're a motorsports fan, you follow multiple disciplines, you're involved in the sport so far as your involvement and your interaction and your relationships with different athletes. From a Formula One perspective, the championship is early from what you've seen so far how do you think the new regulations are working and what would be your early predictions for how this championship is going to play out uh formula one
2: i think the cars look fantastic i can't remember who was talking on the on the broadcast uh, during this weekend's race i think it was one of the might have been julian palmer he was saying he he looked at a picture of last year's car and because you have you know relevance or reference of the new car, the old cars are only one year old, but they look completely boxy and ugly compared to the, they're so sleek and sexy. And yeah, I think they, I think they did a really good thing, making it a lot easier to get close. Um, the racing has been really good so far. Uh, championship. Um, I think it's going to come down to Charles or Max. Um, Unfortunately, the Williams looks terrible. <laughs> it just looks really hard to drive. Uh, they've got no <laughs> no front end on that thing, yeah, it seems like. Yeah. you know, I think uh, Charles is going to have signs his number all year. So, yeah, I think it's going to come down between uh, Charles or, or Max for the title this year. MotoGP, I actually haven't been able to see the last two races. And, it's, I mean, the parity has been so so great. I mean, it's... It's the last three years or two years, at least you never, you know, it's not a guarantee who's going to win the race. So it's, it's, it's amazing. So that who knows, I'm going to say Cuadro or Fabio, just because he's, he's always, he's always up there. Um, Even if he doesn't qualify well, he seems to make progress during the race. And that's not a, that's not, uh, a fan bias by any means I just think that's I just think that's what's going to happen
0: I totally agree with you I specifically remember that comment during the Formula 1 race with Julian Palmer where he was talking about having looked at a photo of the cars from the previous year they're they're almost they're almost I I don't know how to express myself without being unprofessional, but it's really hard to go back and watch a race with those cars because they seem so – and I get that from an engineering perspective, they're cutting edge, but they were so antiquated just purely from a design perspective. And this year's cars, like we all knew that the cars were going to be slower, but I think the compromise was, hey – following is going to be better racing is going to be better the cars are going to be much slower but they're also going to look better but now we've got these cars that are better to race are a little bit more racy it's easier to follow they look way better and as it turns out they're really not that much slower and by the end of the season they might actually be quicker which is just remarkable and they're doing it on a massive budget that they've never had before I also 100% agree with your MotoGP prediction and I think our listeners get tired of me talking about MotoGP because this is an F1 show but I think the reason that MotoGP is so compelling, is just because, to your point, there's so much parity in that championship, and almost anybody can score a podium in any given race. And the first three races of the season, we saw nine different people climb onto the podium, which is absolutely incredible. Tyler, my friend, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. This has been incredible. I hope for our listeners at home, this is insightful. I know there was a lot of excitement that we were going to bring you on and talk about a dimension of the sport that isn't probably as well understood, appreciated, or respected as it is. Before we sign off, though, where can our listeners find you? Where can they follow you on social media? Maybe shout out your website. And if anyone is interested, and I think you're probably backlogged for the next couple of years based on all of the work that you're doing, if anyone was ever interested in getting any work done through you, what does that process look like? Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram,
2: uh, just Sensport is the handle, uh, C E N S P O R T. And then my website, sensport.com. Uh, uh, those are really the only two outlets. I don't have Facebook. So just Instagram or or the website and what
0: if somebody was looking to get their own helmet custom painted uh just contacting me
2: (laughs) really it's it's really simple um it's kind of interesting you know some of the clients be like man this is way easier than i ever thought it would be i'm like you know it's as easy as you as you make it you know um if you don't if you know you want a custom painted helmet but you don't have any clue what you want then yeah it's not going to be easy but uh Yeah, as long as people come to me prepared, it's, you know, it's wham, bam,
0: Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. For everybody listening at home, thank you so much. You can follow us at at one pod on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at the same at F one pod If you enjoy our show, we would love if you could give us a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple. Once again, this is Mark signing out. Please join against this coming weekend as we review the latest Grand Prix from the Formula One 2022 championship. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
1: I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking. Arizona mixtape just around the corner did a lot in California can't wait to drop this don't you yeah they gon' have fun with that smash like song and my songs gonna break
2: through like a running back